Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Thursday episode of the Fraudology podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. After such a heartfelt conversation with Andrew Austin on Tuesday, I really wanted to just kind of continue that theme for today's episode, talking about personal development and our purpose and impact and the purpose and impact that I see in other people that inspires me and all of that. And I think partially the reason why I was in a personal development mood after having that conversation with Andrew, I mean, it just, I think for anyone to listen to it, I'm sure it spurred a lot of thoughts in your mind, right? And, oh, well, that kind of reminds me of this. Or, well, my journey took a detour, but here's what I learned from it. Things like that. And I think for me, around this time of year, I'm often focused on what I want to improve and change in my life. And I think Partially, it's because the change of seasons from summer to fall is pretty drastic where I live. So I'm thinking about, you know, change. And then on top of that, I think it's just default because my birthday is in September. And uh, so it's kind of natural to think about the year before and then the year coming up and what you want to, you know, change and how you want to show up differently and all of that. Because as much as sometimes I don't want to reflect on things, I am... um, And I think all of us are like this in some way. We're analytical, right? Like we're used to diving into the details and trying to figure out the why of a transaction that looks suspicious or an account that looks different than usual or transfers or withdrawals that look, you know, different. And so I think we just say things in our minds and to ourselves like, huh, that's different than what I've usually done or that's different than what I usually see. So why? And then focusing on that. So we can't help but overanalyze ourselves a lot too. But maybe that topic wouldn't have been interesting. So it could have just been me, you know, going off on 20 minute tangents, which some of you will understand that reference. And, you know, maybe it wouldn't have been helpful. And then I realized that I've heard from several people in the last two weeks since the episode that I had Nate Carl, the CEO and co-founder of Spec on the podcast, talking about some very common exploits that are occurring on a handful of different third-party fraud vendors, as well as bot detection systems, depending on how they gather data, what data, and how valuable that specific data is for them to assess risk, and how they respond or how they provide that information back, especially when it's been exploited, either by a good user or a bad user. And there were some really good questions, and there were a handful that I heard multiple times from different people. And so I prepared an outline of those questions, you know, that were really thoughtful and interesting. And, you know, obviously more than a couple people had them. So safe to say that several of you would appreciate the answers or find them interesting. And I am definitely going to do that episode, hopefully next week. But in addition to a lot of positive feedback on that episode, I mean, at this point, two weeks in, several hundred people have listened to it. It was popular and in part partially because friend of fraudology, Frank McKenna, and the author behind the Frank on Fraud blog. You all, I am sure, subscribe to his weekly newsletter as you should and check his website often for news. Well, the day after 
the episode released, Frank sent me a text and said that he found it really interesting and wanted to write an article about it. And I think that's the first time that Frank has ever written an article around a topic and a conversation that happened on the podcast. So I was really glad about that. I want to be creating content that helps the industry stay informed and think about things differently and stretch themselves, whether it's professionally or personally, because we really are one big community. And it's important that we all share information with each other. And I've been very grateful to kind of by default become a conduit of information within the industry over the years. So for the next few days after Frank texted me, Nate and Frank and I got us all in a group thread on a text and just via text message, uh, Nate was able to answer every question that Frank had. And I think that article that he wrote uh, was really a good compliment to the podcast. You could listen to the full episode of the podcast and read that article and not feel like it was redundant because Frank asked new questions, right? About like what types of, uh, or what the names of some of the companies uh, or the products that are being used to block the gathering of JavaScript from client-side devices, especially any device-specific information. Yes, the name of some of those products as well as some of the other things. So if you haven't yet listened or if you haven't yet read that article, but you listened to the episode, I highly recommend doing that. And I'll make sure to put a link to Frank's article in the show notes. But then I had to go to Plan C for today's episode. Because in addition to all those questions and really good feedback, there was uh, one person who wrote a blog article on LinkedIn uh, last week uh, challenging some of the things that I said and, and choices I made on the podcast. thought it was interesting that there wasn't really a lot of criticism other than any specific for my guest. But the criticism fell pretty squarely on my shoulders. And I can take it because, again, personal development. I want to learn. I want to grow. And sometimes that means being challenged and getting really uncomfortable. And I want to be the first person to say, wow, I really messed up there. Here's some new information. You know, when you know better, you do better. You can't do better until you know better. So I'm open to criticism. Uh, criticism via a public format, it's a little bit more challenging, especially when it starts with pretty personal and negative attacks at the meeting, but I'll get into that in a minute. And I didn't respond right away. One, because my grandfather was a pretty successful businessman, and he used to um, have a phrase that he would say fairly often. They didn't really understand until I got older, but he would say, don't get in a pissing match with a skunk. And I'm not saying that this particular person is a skunk by any means, but what I take that to mean is, you know, take a minute, right? Think about it. Think it through. And I was thinking about how I was going to respond to it when my daughter got a stomach bug uh, and then gave it to me last week. So didn't have time. But I thought, well, after I answer some of these questions about my article today, I'll just, you know, tack on a few comments and responses I have to the blog article. Because there are a couple of things that it's important to me to clarify that I did or didn't say or uh, provide different information that might be helpful to the person who wrote the blog, as well as anyone who read it. I do enjoy having a two-way conversation as much as we can from this podcast. And yeah, I have the platform and the microphone, but that doesn't mean that I don't want to hear feedback from people who listen. So good or bad, right? Um, so that's what, you know, that's what I was going to do. And then as I started to write out 
a few uh, responses and thoughts. But I just wanted to make sure I organized before getting on the microphone. I realized that that's a whole episode in itself. So, and then I was like, well, that can wait. But when I looked up the blog article for reference, just to like remind myself of some of the specific things that were said, I read the comments and saw a really thoughtful one from the co-founder and uh, CEO of a company that's similar to Spec. There are some notable differences, but they have a very similar perspective on transactions and are seeing them at the very beginning. So they're able to see the entire customer journey uh, via connecting to the network of a website rather than the website internally and on the back end through private APIs sharing selective data with a third party. So they see everything that a customer does in every session on the website from the minute they hop on till when they close that browser. And that's how they're able to see, oh, they're blocking JavaScript. They're using ad blockers. They're using anti-detect, those type of things. And they're able to see, okay, we can see that this person started using anti-detect or an ad blocker the minute they came onto our website all the way through transaction. Or a lot of times what happens when it's bad actors is they come on, they're not using any uh, blocker or anything. They put things in their cart. As soon as they're about ready to check out, then they know that that session data, that snapshot at the transaction is going to be sent to a third party for risk evaluation. Then all of a sudden they turn on the anti-detect or the ad blockers to block you know, JavaScript from being transmitted to a third party provider to be able to understand the device information. And as an industry, we, a lot of companies have come to rely on device information and that's not a bad thing. But how much we rely on it and what we use it for and how it's transmitted, that was the purpose of the conversation. And also, quite frankly, there's just been a lot of people that have been noticing a decrease in accuracy in fraud products. And I don't like it, but I definitely see patterns. The same handful or so of core fraud products, um, device intelligence products or products that rely on that as a big part of their decisioning, as well as bot detection. The accuracy is going down lately. And I want this podcast to be helpful to as many people as possible. Like I said, I'm really lucky to be a conduit in the industry. And I just don't think that the information that I get from so many fraud fighters, I don't think it's fair for me to hoard it and not share it with people. And once a fraud analyst, always a fraud analyst. I've said this before. Uh, trend analysis is not just for spreadsheets. But I'm like, huh, you're the fourth merchant that uses that particular uh, core fraud product that has said that their chargebacks are much higher and their decline rate is going up. The accuracy is going down. Their calls to customer service are going up, et cetera. Oh, that's weird. And so when Nate told me about some of these exploits he was seeing, I had to share it. So back on track here. So, oh, I went, there is, that wasn't a 20 minute tangent. That was more like a five minute tangent, but I'll go back and land the plane. So I went and I looked and I looked at the blog post to look at information, just go, okay, what was, what was that? I want to make sure I answer the questions that the questions are the points that I feel like are most important and will provide most value to people listening to the podcast. I don't want this to be like a petty clapback or anything, and that's not my intention at all. So I saw a comment from the co-founder of a similar company to Spec saying very similar things, right? That he's seeing the exact same thing 
I think he's trying to provide a little extra explanation to the author so they maybe understood a little bit more about the purpose and the focus of the uh, episode. And the author replied, and then I noticed today that in the reply, it um, indicated that he was a little disappointed that I hadn't responded to his article. So then I felt like, okay, well, I'm going to write all this stuff down and I'm going to see, you know, I'll add it to the end of answering questions. Well, once I wrote it down, I was like, oh, yeah, no, this is an episode in itself, as I said. So here we go. I'm going to try to read through this fairly quickly. And whether you listened to the episode with Nate or not, I think there are a few things in here that you'll find interesting. Things that I probably haven't talked about in a while, but that might be helpful and fascinating whether you're having this specific issue or not. So as I said before, I welcome challenges. I always know that there's room to learn more. But something that I really love and respect about our industry is that you can never know everything. And I've said this several times before, but it remains true. Whenever I meet anyone that seems like they feel like they know everything in fraud, it usually means that at some point in their career, they stopped learning. I have a great amount of respect and humility from our industry because I'm learning something new every day. And I love that because I am an internal learner. But I also put a considerable amount of time into fact-checking my content. And I'm pretty darn thoughtful about what goes out. So I try really hard not to be irresponsible about it or provide wrong information. So truthfully, it's rare that I get called out in such a manner. Um, so just one little quick note to the author or to anyone else who is inspired to write a LinkedIn post or a blog article or something public uh, criticizing content in the podcast or something that I've said. I welcome that with just a couple of notes for next time. Um, just, you know, my own personal preferences. Uh, if you choose to criticize, you know, any the content that I provide the community in public, I have a couple of suggestions. One, please don't start with accusations. Being accused of fear-mongering and clickbaity titles doesn't exactly show good faith or make me feel like, oh, this person has really good intentions and they want to, you know, correct something that I said so that people aren't, you know, believing something that's wrong or something like that. Also, um, please make sure that you listen to the entire episode or read the entire post or article that I write. In this specific blog article, the author accused myself and my guest of not saying a few things that we absolutely did and also said that we didn't include specific advice that I know we gave. In fact, I even went back and listened to it, although the advice section was towards the end. So maybe they didn't finish it, but I was like, wait, I know we said that. And I know we said that too. No, we addressed that. So that was kind of, you know, just be thorough to your homework. And then third, um, please fact check your own statements. It can be considered irresponsible to provide misleading and half-true statements when providing advice for businesses. And if this is to people who are reading white papers and blogs and all that, and consuming that and believing everything that you read, if you're only relying on free advice, especially from sources who may have ulterior motives, like people who work for a vendor, then you might want to you know, reconsider uh, putting all of your faith in those documents. It's good to read them and know what they're saying and know their perspectives, but give a little grain of salt to the source and go, okay, they may have a reason why 
they're tilting a little bit this way or that way. So those are just a couple of quick thoughts that I had. I, like I said, I don't want to make this a petty clap back. That's not my style. And honestly, it's not productive. But I just figured, you know, if this becomes a trend and multiple people want to be inspired by the content and write blog articles or posts about it criticizing it, I that's fine. Just, you know, if you want to have a good faith argument, I suggest that you maybe do those three things. Okay, so here are a few specific things I want to clarify with the author. And also for anyone who may have read or didn't read that article. So first it was said that fraudsters have been doing this for a long time. That basically what Nate and I talked about wasn't new. Finding exploits, finding weak spots in the system, trying to figure out the system. That isn't new. And I completely agree with that. It's not new. But how they're doing it is very new and different. And that's what we were trying to highlight. So I'm just trying to pull up the article really fast so I can read the blurb that uh, I don't want to put words in somebody else's mouth. So here's the paragraph. I think it's a good topic. I was talking about fraud detection not being as accurate as it used to be. I also think there's a bit of fear-mongering, however, in the sense of this being something new to worry about. It seems misleading in painting solution providers as being caught off guard. In my experience, bad actors have been probing and testing thresholds since the beginning. I completely agree. In the 2000s, I was working uh, on the merchant side and we would have to constantly change the amount thresholds for digital gift certificates. Because bad actors would realize by buying a digital gift card for $90 instead of $100, it wouldn't get flagged. So we'd set our rules to flag 90 and above, and then we started seeing fraudulent order for $80 gift cards and so on. So I 100% agree. That's not new. Them trying to test things out? Absolutely. Uh, what's different and not talked about in uh, anywhere else that I've seen is the use until, you know, this podcast episode and then Frank's article and then this other blog article uh, is really about the use of technology like blockers or AI to hide information that a merchant or a fintech, you know, assume is being assessed by their vendor or to identify, you know, a bad actor. And but instead, they're using it to game the system to figure out what a company is measuring. So it's one thing to know that, you know, fraudsters are, were, are placing manual orders to test thresholds, right? Like dollar limits, velocity, billing and shipping and IP and device proximity, PII verification. Is this company verifying that that email address has been around for a long time or it's been connected to that user in the past or are they not? Can I use any old email address or do I have to get a little more crafty? It's one thing to do that because they're testing with orders. They're taking their time and resources to narrow down what's being measured and they're doing it manually. And also it's very trackable. Test orders are trackable. So you can literally see, oh, this is where they were trying to game the system. Just like a few online companies had seen the master manipulators testing out different things and trying out you know, different thresholds and different formats of address manipulation a month or two before the large attack. You can track it because orders are being placed and you can usually tie it together with one or two overlapping identifiers or behavior or any other thing. But it's another thing, and this is the new thing that we wanted to highlight, to know that there's programmable technology out there that can exploit some fraud systems depending on how that vendor extracts and receives data from their client. That method is faster, cheaper, and scalable. And 
It's not something that a merchant or a financial institution or a fintech can track. In fact, there's no footprints or evidence that they've been doing that, that bad actors have been trying to understand the thresholds or understand what uh, types of checks or uh, what's being monitored and looked at and measured and assessed. You can't do that when they're blocking all their information. And then when it gets sent to the vendor as, you know, no information, the vendor instead sends back, you know, a thumbs up or a thumbs down, not a, hey, um, we only got like 70% of the information or we only got 30% of the information that we need to assess risk on this order. So you might want to have someone look at it or take our response with a grain of salt, something like that. It's not done like that. So that's what we were highlighting. And to me, those are very different. They're different circumstances and they represent different threat levels. So yes, on the surface, they've been testing out systems for decades. I completely agree with that. But as you dive in a little bit more, the methods are different and they're almost impossible for a company to know it's happening. And so if you don't know that they're testing your systems and they're trying and they're figuring out what you send out for information or what you're looking at more closely or know, okay, they use a specific type of solution for bot detection or for fraud protection that relies heavily on client-side JavaScript uh, relaying back to the provider. Well, they want to know that because then they can block it. They can block it and the merchant doesn't know at all that they were testing it or that they're blocking it or that that's possible. Well, the possible part was true until we had the episode. And that was really the whole point was, hey guys, this is something to be aware of. If you're seeing these symptoms, you might want to ask some questions. Fraudology is now brought to you by Sardine. So what is Sardine? I mean, other than a small oily fish in the herring family, Sardine is a fraud tech platform that was ultimately built by fraud fighters for fellow fraud fighters with the features that they wanted in a fraud provider when they worked for companies within financial services, e-commerce, digital banking, and consumer lending. They're a team who geeks out on the same minute data that indicate a fraud pattern or anomaly as we do, and they run investigations every day. Sardine's product is even measured with the same KPIs as you probably are. More specifically, Sardine has combined more than 30 data providers into one tool for you. Benchmarked for performance into a single dashboard and API that can be used for KYC, AML, and payment fraud detection. But crucially, they also allow Sardine customers to use their own data, to access their own data, as well as the results from all data providers they work with and the features Sardine has created as they, their customers, need to use them. There's no more mysterious black box that calculates the risk of new accounts, logins, or transactions and magically turns them into a score that was most likely based on attributes that look risky to other business models. For some clients, they use Sardines as their full stack for all account onboarding, transaction monitoring, case management, etc. Others use them as a sophisticated data provider. Basically, Sardine fits to you rather than vice versa. So if you want to see for yourself that the product you've always wanted finally exists, you can book a demo at www.sardine.ai or by clicking the link in the show notes for today's episode. So uh, moving on, some of the advice provided in the article made the assumption that merchants or fintechs or banks will know when 
uh, job has been disabled and or when they receive an in, um, indeterminate response from their vendor. And if that were possible or if that were happening, it would make this so much easier to manage. What Nate really highlighted was for several reasons, solution providers don't want to provide an error message on the way back. They want to provide a very clear yes or no. Some will provide a yes, no, maybe if the provide um, if the merchant or the fintech has manual review, but those are pre-programmed based on getting all the data fields. To my knowledge, I don't know of any solution providers that are providing back information saying, hey, we only got 15% of what we usually use to manage risk. So with that 15%, this is our suggestion. There's not an error message because then the merchant system may not be set up to be able to act on it and have actions. So because this is fairly new, that's not happening. Uh, most vendors either don't have a way to send back an incomplete response uh, to say like, we didn't have visibility into XYZ. We couldn't see the device. We have no idea what type of device they're using or the browser language or, you know, the geography or anything like that. Um, or they don't want to admit that they're blind to sometimes up to 90% of the data that they use to assess risk. So they're just kind of doing a thumbs up or thumbs down with their eyes closed. And for me, I just think with everything, and this is how I work with my clients, this is how I work with friends and things like that, is even if we just know something's broken or we know that a data source isn't perfect, knowing that can really help inform your decision. But if you don't have insight into that happening, then all you see is the results. You see all of a sudden a lot more bot orders and you know, purchasing uh, bots. So script attacks for purchases, getting through and past your bot detection system. You see more chargebacks, you see more declines, you're seeing a lot more false positives. You're probably having other departments who feel the impact of those contacting you and saying, what's going on? If you have a chargeback guarantee product, there's a possibility, depending on which one it is, that they've started writing really big checks back to your company at the end of the month, because even after taking out all of your fees, they owe you that so much back. Sometimes it's like five figures, like mid five figures a month because they're covering chargebacks and they just missed them. And like we said on the episode, the challenge with that, it would be easy if that meant a hundred percent, it was bad that they were blocking it, but we have a whole new generation coming up, Gen Z that really wants to protect their privacy. And it's important to them. They understand how much their data is tracked and followed and sold and you know monetized and all that. And so they're also installing these exact same tools so that they can you know go across the internet quickly. And like I said the other day on the episode, there was a fraud leader for a pretty well-known brand who said, you know, not only is Gen Z trying to mask everything and they're using you know, temporary email addresses and, you know, uh, digital cards that change the number every time and VoIP phone numbers and just whatever, all the things that, you know, all the PII and all that that we're trying to, that we use to try to figure out are, is the person who's placing the order, is the person who opened the account, that actual person, is the person who accessed the account, the person who owns it. They're blocking all those because they don't want them followed. And with their bank, then of course they're going to use all the right information, but not with their merchant. But as the fraud leader pointed out, 
not only are they doing that, that generation also very much expects and has a very high expectation that online orders will work. They've come to rely on them. If they don't have this problem all the time, they get really frustrated. It, well, why did you deny me? And it, they won't understand it. I mean, let's face it, most consumers don't even understand that online companies are the ones who are paying their bank back when their bank pays them back for fraud on their card. So why would they think, oh, this company cares about me providing the right information? Okay, and there's one more correction that I just have to make before ending this episode. I didn't want to nitpick on every single thing, but this one, I just, I think it's so important to know this. Again, it's a problem that maybe you can't fix it, but at least knowing what's possible and what the other side is doing and is capable of can really help in trying to make informed decisions and do the best you can with what you got. So there was a statement uh, that was made in the article uh, saying that it would, and I'm paraphrasing here, but it would be impossible for a bad actor or even you know a fraud ring of hundreds of bad actors. I don't think it's hundreds, but you know, for fraudsters in general, to know the third-party fraud tools or bot detection that every company uses. Um, and he was saying that in the purpose to advocate for network consortiums. So I have some really bad news. And I know I've said this before in previous episodes, but I think it's important to repeat and for everyone to know this. Whether you use a network consortium as part of your fraud layers or your core fraud solution or not. It doesn't really matter. This piece of information is important to know. Fraudsters absolutely can and do know which third-party vendors your company utilizes for KYC, KYB, transaction risk, account protection, bot detection, payment processing, all of it. They And honestly, we've made it easy for them. We collectively, as e-commerce and government and all the layers, not just like us in the industry, in the fraud industry, definitely not. The two easiest ways for them to know exactly which providers your company or financial institution use for third-party risk assessment, and these are all ones that are being called out to, right, by API. So this doesn't include internal tools that were built, uh, which is a whole build versus buy is a whole other debate. It also doesn't include uh, some of the solutions that are uh, built into your network on site and don't have API calls. This is very specific to the companies where data is being sent out for a risk assessment or, you know, anything like that. So here's the first way. Thanks to GDPR and similar privacy rules, companies are now required to list every partner that is sent customer data in their terms and conditions. So we used to say, well, the only way they'll know is if, you know, your company's logo is on the vendor's site, which FYI, I said this a couple weeks ago, but not all not all logos that are on vendor uh, websites are accurate. But that's, you know, not important because honestly, they don't care anymore. They're just going straight to a company's T's and C's and going, okay, where's the privacy piece? Where's the data share disclosure? Oh, okay. They use this company for device. They use this company for bot detection. They use that company for core fraud solution. Oh, I know an exploit on that core third-party fraud detection system. I'll just do that. The second way, and I've seen this in action multiple times in different ways, there are multiple browser extensions. And I even know that a few uh, solution providers have had asked their uh, internal engineers to build one quite easily. 
that can detect and track every API call within a transaction flow or a login, um, you know, post checkout, anything like that. They can literally see, oh, okay, they're sending data to this company through API, this one, that one, that one, that one. They can see the cadence and the order. And some of them can see a little bit of everything. They can't see exactly what data is being sent. That would be absolutely against PCI, right? So they can't see, okay, phone number, you know, 555-555-1234 or whatever is being sent over. But they can see who it's being sent to. So it's kind of like getting um, a cell phone log at the end of the month, right? Like of your calls on your mobile. You may not know what those calls are about, but you can see who they were to and who they were from. And there's, you know, fair amount of deductive reasoning that can be done even with that data. And the biggest one is, oh, they're sending information to this company. What does that company do? Oh, I'll look up their website. Oh, okay. They do device detection. If I block my JavaScript, I wonder if they will auto pass me because they won't be able to see any of my device information and they probably rely pretty heavily on that information. And some vendors even make it really handy and it is very handy. Um, but some of them, you know, will publish their API documentation publicly. And that shows exactly what values are being sent and how it's being assessed and how it's being returned back. And so, you know, these are smart people. These are not, we are not, I mean, we, we all have multiple dumb fraudster stories and those are fun and entertaining. But the ones that do this as a job and as a career, whether they've been doing it for three years since, you know, the pandemic and the height of COVID relief fraud, and then they moved on to e-com or banking fraud after that dried up, or the ones that have been doing it for 15 years. They study this space. They know it. If you've ever read any of the training manuals that are sold either on the dark web or on you know, any of the encrypted messaging sites, they're actually quite smart. For a while there, there was a tutorial on how to actually use an um, open source tool that a very popular fraud provider made available and really whitelisted to a lot of other fraud providers to see if the IP address had already been placed on negative lists and if it had already been blacklisted within a network. This was like four or five years ago. It's still possible. I did try to contact that vendor a couple of times through the avenues I had to say, hey, I think it might be worth assessing the type of traffic you're getting on your site for your one standalone product where people can buy, can prepay credits and then get credits for an account to do several IP address lookups. I know that the intention is that this be used by good guys, but you might want to look at your network traffic and see what's happening here because there are multiple tutorials saying, hey, go to this website, pay, you know, $30 in credits. You can now check, you know, 100 or whatever it was, IP addresses and know in real time if those IP addresses have been put on the negative list across the entire network. So very handy tool. They were like, oh, sweet, we can reverse engineer this and use it for ourselves. There's other things like that, too. So again, the exploit, you know, the fact that fraudsters are exploiting third-party fraud tools isn't necessarily new either. It's how they're doing it. It's the fact that it's not trackable. It's the fact that it is scalable and automatic and taking a lot less time and resources for them to figure these things out. And that just puts us at a disadvantage. So back to kind of the point about network consortiums, not only does 
you know, all of that mean that some, and not all, of the network consortiums can be gamed or exploited. And I've talked about ways this is happening uh, on a couple episodes, but specifically, I remember the one over a year ago. I think the title had uh, the term whitelist fraud in it. If you want to go back and listen, it's how um, at least one very specific fraud provider, but I think there were two at the very least that were experiencing targeted attacks on different merchants on their uh, network. They would, you know, purchase a couple of low dollar items at merchant A, and then they would have previous good orders in the system. And, you know, within the next 30 days or however long it takes for the chargeback or the notification of fraud to be sent in, that fraudster has all that time to then on other merchants, merchant B, merchant C, et cetera, place high dollar transactions using that same address and phone number and email, et cetera. And the system just keeps giving it a thumbs up because it has previous good transactions. And, you know, especially with the low dollar transactions, they may not at all get charged back because if it's under $50, some banks won't issue it. So that kind of, you know, some network consortiums have been being gained for years. There's And there's several ways that, that could happen. That's just one example. So like I said, it doesn't just mean that some of those can be gamed or exploited in different ways, but it also means that they don't have to test out uh, and have trial and error on every single company one at a time to ID each company's weakness. This kind of goes back to the, oh, this is nothing new. Well, yeah, it is. When they're able to know very quickly which companies use which third-party vendors and they know which third-party vendors have specific exploits, that takes so much time and effort out of it. And also, again, it's not trackable. The merchant or the fintech or the bank, they don't know that, that that's happening because all of that information gathering about their target is happening off the target's platform. And when you only have visibility into a snapshot of you know all the information that is provided at checkout, and you may or may not have reliable device information, that's just not enough anymore. That's why I'm such a big fan of companies like Spec. And of course, like Spec's the, you know, the horse that I bet on, so to speak, and it's for several reasons and that uh, I can share it another time or happy to answer questions if anyone has them. But, you know, at the same time, I think it's important to talk to any company that claims to be able to provide customer journey information, find out how they do it, find out what use cases they, you know, they're able to solve, and then make sure you talk to their customers, find out how happy they are. You know, I think Spec has, you know, been around for two to three years. So they have quite a few really impressive customers that, you know, would be happy to talk about it and go, oh, yeah, we've been using them for a year. We've been using them for six months or we've been using them for, you know, two years. And this is how we've benefited. So that's why it's important to have more information and to really understand the source. Understand the source and the way that the information is being communicate and how it can be exploited so that you know how to fill those holes, right? That's really the point. I'm not, I mean, I am very frustrated that there are some companies who have made business, you know, third-party fraud providers as well as bot detection that have made the business decision not to innovate, knowing that many of their clients are not in a position to rip and replace their solution and upgrade it, even though they know that that company has to do so much more work and hire so many more people and everything else to run that system and even have it work kind of well, 
like that's just where we're at. I get frustrated about that. But I also think at this point, we just need to, it's okay to accept that some providers are going to have more holes than others because quite frankly, when they created these solutions, this technology wasn't out there. And also when they created these solutions, the things that were risk factors then, good guys weren't really doing. And that isn't just about uh, anti-detect or anything like that. There's so many other things that, you know, from VPNs to so many other things that we can say, well, yeah, only bad guys used to do that, but now the good guys do. So we have to adapt. But when you know the weaknesses and the possible ways that the systems you rely on can be exploited, you can then address it. You can then, you know, augment it or supplement it with another solution or talk to your vendor about, well, how do you, you know, what's the best way for you to send us back and let us know that you didn't have, you know, more than 70% of the information you need to assess risk on, you know, these transactions. That's it. That you can then go into problem solving mode and it's productive. And that is always my goal is to provide proactive information, not just, hey, the sky is falling, but here's what you can do about it to, you know, hopefully not get a head injury from when it does or whatever. I know all of my crazy analogies that I come up with off the top of my head, sometimes they, some make more sense than others. So I've seen more than one thread in Telegram or Discord or other places uh, talking about what method to use against a company that uses vendor X or vendor Y. And there are also a few vendors, outliers, who do things differently, right? Who use the data differently. They're looking at it differently. They're using different systems that don't have very many exploits. And so it's not like they all do, but there's a fair amount of them that do. And like I said, just knowing that can at least help you prepare for it, right? So some of the things that they talk about in those threads, it includes knowing which ones rely heavily on cookies and JavaScript and can be fooled with, you know, account blockers and, you know, anti-detect tools and all that. Or, you know, exactly how long they need to leave a browser tab open on the merchant's website and then refresh it to make it look like two new sessions on the same device. So, oh, no, it's trusted. Or all these weird, like, I don't know, stand in your head and count to 12 and press this button and click on this and that, and then it'll break the system. I mean, there's so many different things, but like, I'm joking with the last one, by the way. But those types of posts, and really, they're not posts that you're going to find in open public forums, because most of the things that are public on things like Telegram and Discord are vendors, well, not our version of vendors, but fraud vendors. Well, no, wait, fraudster vendors. Is that the term? Bad actor vendors? No, that just sounds like they're in a, you know, poorly done production of Shakespeare or something. But, um, I don't know. But anyway, vendors on the dark web, for lack of a better term, they're advertising their services, right? So they might list companies that they have figured out exploits for, but they're not going to tell all the nitty gritty stuff. And over the years, I've had access to a fair amount of these behind the scenes where the people who are providing those services and who are bragging about it on the public channels, they all talk to each other in these private channels. Hey, how are you hitting these guys? What do I do if they send it back? You know, what am I doing wrong? These are all the things I did. Why did they do it? Oh, I hit those guys last week or I hit those guys last month. You have to change this or you have to do that. Oh, okay, cool. So I've seen all those. So I know, I mean, not all of them, sorry, did not mean to misrepresent that, but I've seen enough to know that they get really specific and they love sharing information with each other because it's a form of bragging, right? You might think like, wow, why would they want to share someone's information? Well, if 
you can't figure out how to steal something from a company, but I did and I could tell you about it. Guess what? I just got, well, I don't think it's street cred, but telegram cred, whatever. Side note, sometimes when I'm talking or, you know, recording these episodes, I think about the random phrases that I say that I'm going to get you know, very randomly texted to me in the next few days. Like the time that I was trying to refer to a company that manufactured coffee makers and I said something about the coffee maker makers. Or another time when I was talking about purchased bots and I said something about bot bots. Some of you who are my friends, who I adore, uh, will just sometimes randomly text you things and I just thought, is Telegram cred going to be one of those? <laughs> now I know for sure and I can... I could name the two people I know will do that. But again, I love being, I love teasing with friends. I, I don't mind it all being razzed or given a hard time. But, you know, if you're going to provide a lot of criticism, I want to make sure that it's accurate so that people reading it aren't thinking, oh, okay, well, that's true, right? I mean, it'd be impossible for fraudsters to know what types of specific tools that, you know, companies use. Well, if you think that, then you're going down a path of bad faith because, there's a lot of things that a lot of beliefs and long-term things that we believe about what's fraud and what's not fraud that can be changed when you know that. Okay, wrapping up, because I really just wanted to focus on these three things in the article and provide a little bit of perspective and additional information that I hope is helpful to the author and to anyone that read it. And even if you didn't read it and you have no idea what I'm talking about. You're like, there was an article written about you that said you are fear-mongering and clickbaity titles. What? Where'd I miss that? Well, I don't know. Somewhere on LinkedIn. Um, It's not that hard to find, especially if you've worked in fraud. So I don't need to, you know, I don't need to give it credit because you'll find it. <laughs> um, But one last note on this last part, and this is just more about network consortiums, which I, kinda, I went on a tangent, but I think a very necessary one about how, you know, it's very easy for fraudsters to figure out which solutions you're using and then from there, what those solutions do, right? Do they mostly look at device information that's communicated via JavaScript? Are they plugged into the network so they can see everything, whether you try to hide it or not? Do they rely heavily on network consortiums? Well, what type of companies are in there? Um, you know, are they using rules-based systems? Are they using supervised machine learning versus unsupervised? All those things are things that they want to know so that they can figure out how to exploit you. But I think it's really important to say that not all network consortiums are vulnerable to, you know, every kind of exploitation or even any exploitation. And they're not all, you know, it's not possible for all of them to be fed bad data or blind data. Without naming any specific companies that I think do have really been thoughtful about the network consortiums, that they've built. And honestly, they've, you know, built them within the last six or seven years because the ones that were really groundbreaking were truthfully created like 13 years ago. And that was game changing when merchants were able to share information with each other through their third party provider. And because it wasn't just information, right? It was data that could be looked at and go, oh, those people, you know, that com or they won't know which company, but a company within my sector, within my industry, uh, marked an order that was fraudulent with the same phone number and email address. Okay, I may not approve that order. When I had Robert Caps on last year, he talked about how he was one of the three merchants who actually came up with that idea and pitched it to their fraud vendor. It was three 
well, it was the three biggest companies at the time in online ticketing. And I remember when that happened, I was friends with a couple of them. It, I don't know, you never really realize you're living history till you're, till after the fact. And quite honestly, it's really only history in our very tiny industry. So maybe it's not that big of a deal, but I remember it so clearly when they told me about it and I was like, oh, it's fascinating. But now because that's been out for so long and it hasn't been significantly changed, there are ways to exploit it. There are things that, you know, aren't going to be as good, but newer companies were able to learn from that and go, okay, we see where that could be used for bad or we see where that wouldn't be as reliable. We're going to do it differently. So again, without naming any specific companies, I can say that when you're looking at network consortiums or companies that have a network consortium, most of them aren't standalone consortium-esque companies. They're not necessarily consortiums, but you know, data sharing in quotation marks because at least one of them doesn't actually extract any data from your server, but through algorithms and the magic of math are able to match up the data that your customer provides you with data that customers have provided other companies that are on the network and be able to say, oh yeah, we've seen you know this, this person before. They've used the same credit card, the same email, the same phone number, et cetera, 27 times over the last eight years across all the companies in our network. That's going to have a lot more value than just, uh, yeah, other companies have seen this or not or whatever. And I'm not saying that they're not all value. I mean, any one of these tools can be enhanced. They can, you know, and that's, you don't always have to rip and replace. That's something that I know that my merchant clients know that uh, I stand by. Uh, if they have the budget and the timeline mm -hmm. and the resources, then yeah, I'll provide suggestions for long-term and, you know, based on the type of company they are, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But in other cases, and this has happened a couple of times this year. It always happens around this year where I work with a couple of retailers that are rushing to try to get ready for the holidays. There is no way that a fraud solution that has to, you know, have API connects to several different parts up and down their system. Like Nate Carl talked about on the first time he came. Wait, was it the first time or the second time he came on the podcast? Sorry, I forgot. I think it was the first time. Now I'm confusing myself. It doesn't matter. Go back and listen to all those episodes. They're good. But he talks about how fraud APIs are so much more complicated than anything else. So instead, when I'm working with my clients like a couple of months or a month before peak season, I'm focused all on quick wins and low-hanging fruit and what are some tools that we can supplement what you have that either has better data sources and they're more reliable, they're more accurate, whatever that is, either before your core fraud solution or after your core fraud solution to help maximize revenue while minimizing risk. So it's not, I'm not necessarily saying, okay, if you're the core fraud solution you use has a network consortium that may not be as reliable as some of the newer ones, or, you know, they really rely on client-side Java extraction. Well, you know, I'm not saying don't use them. I'm saying know the weaknesses and try to supplement them uh, with either short or long-term solutions. And one other thing is this, it's important to ask these vendor, you know, any vendor that uses consortium data for any aspect of their decisioning, how the consortium data is transmitted, stored, normalized, and referenced. It also really matters if the data is issued and provided to you as an opinion or a fact. Here's what I mean by that. And I really want to shout someone out, but then 
you know, I know, I know I need to respect all of you with not sharing your first and last names, but I, again, you know, speaking of like learning something new every day, this is something that someone uh, shared with me as a way to differentiate the types of data and reliability and usability of data that some consortiums are providing. And I just think it's brilliant and I want to give them a shout out, but I'm not going to for anonymity's sake. So if your consortium is giving you back a fact, it's something like this email has been seen before since, you know, 2006, or, you know, something more sophisticated. This email and this phone number have been seen together X number of times over, you know, four years time period, whatever the time period is, right? But an opinion, when they're providing an opinion back, they it would be something like this transaction uh, or this particular, you know, all the information on this transaction or this particular data point was marked as fraud by another provider or by another merchant. That's an opinion. It's hard to act on an opinion because you don't have enough context. You don't know how that company quantifies fraud, right? Is it any chargeback? Is it just a fraud chargeback? Is it, you know... Uh, a consumer that was hit by a scam on a on their bank account, or is it you know something else like you just or somebody that just calls and says, "Oh, I had fraud somewhere." You don't know how every single company because you don't know all the numbers, and also you know it's an anonymous network for a reason. You don't know it, so I guess my whole point of this longer part of it and getting into a few of the weeds uh, is yes, I do agree with the author of the blog that network consortium data can be a helpful uh, aspect, but it just, um, I, I think it's, I think we need to dig deeper. I think that we can't just say, and this will be a, a whole conversation in itself in a whole episode, because I had this conversation with a group of merchants the other day. We can no longer say, okay, I got bot detection, check the box. Okay, I got you know, core fraud solution, check the box. Okay, we got a data verification provider, check the box. No, we need to know all the things about them, right? As far as data verification providers, who are their data sources? Because half of them are using a fair amount of the same data sources that fraudsters are. I'm not saying that fraudsters are using that specific provider, but those providers are buying data from data brokers. There are other data verification systems that are favored by fraudsters and bad actors to verify information about their their victim and to use that, right? So they might just have a name and a credit card number. Well, what's their actual address? Oh, I'll go look it up here. And then that way it'll match for the merchant because presumably I know which provider they use and I know that that matters. I, I know that it matters that the billing address be the same as it is on the bank. So I'm going to go do that homework. Some of those data sources for you know, the bad vendor, for lack of a better term, and the good vendor are the same. So how accurate and how much can you rely on some of those data verifications when, of course, it's going to say, yep, it's good because the fraudster already had, they had the answers to the test, right, ahead of time. And if you're expecting that there's no way they could have the answers on the test or for the same key that you have, well, that's not the case. So my whole point is, you know, do some research, double check, figure out what are your weaknesses? Are you a vendor that will admit those and say, hey, you know what? We, you know, we're doing it this way. We're working on fixing it. But for now, here's a way that you can get around that. Or are you a vendor that, you know, when your merchants say, oh, we're having this problem, you're like, oh, you're the 
only customer that has that problem. I don't know what's wrong. Or you're not sending us enough data. Or your engineers reconfigured the API wrong. And maybe they did, right? But like, is that productive to point fingers? Anyway, I could so easily go on like so many other 20-minute tangents on all of these things because they're just such common conversations and things that, you know, I obviously get a little fired up about because the details matter in fraud. They've always mattered, but they matter so much more now. Now that, I mean, technology is really shifting on both sides and I really think that we need to up our game. And so I'm going to talk about it a lot. And like I said, I do want to answer the frequently, most frequently asked questions from that episode also. I think this is probably one of the first times I'm having like two follow-up episodes about one episode, but there was obviously a lot to, you know, clarify. And like I said, it's a two-way conversation. It just, you know, takes a little time. There might be a few days or a week between our conversations, but I try to get answers back sometimes through the podcast if I know that more than one person is asking them or may have read something that, you know, I'd like to at least respond to. But I'm going to end it there. I really hope that the author of the article has listened to this entire episode and understands where I'm coming from. Not pointing fingers because we're all learning, we're all on different journeys as bringing it back to Andrew's episode on Tuesday. And we're all learning different things at different times. I have a really steep advantage because I get to talk to the smartest people in the world that are doing this every day. And I get to learn from them what they see. And oftentimes it's the companies that are getting hit first and big targets. So I usually get a little bit of an edge. And that's, again, why I started the podcast, because I was like, wow, I feel really selfish not getting this information out. And before COVID, I was able to do that a little bit more by, you know, speaking at conferences and being a keynote and sharing new trends and all that. But during COVID, especially, we were all disconnected. And I'm so grateful that this podcast has become the top resource in online fraud. And uh, at least from an audio perspective, I am 99% sure that Frank McKenna would beat my numbers with his subscriber list. But it's not a competition. If we're all contributing a little bit, and if we're all, you know, willing to listen and hear each other out and learn from each other and go, oh, okay, well, hmm, I didn't know that before, but now I do. And that's going to be really helpful. Um, then I think that's the whole point, right? That's the whole point of a community is to learn from each other in different ways and on different topics. So I hope that you learned a little something today on this episode. And uh, I, as always, look forward to speaking with you more next week. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.